0: This episode of the Queen's Memory Podcast has been produced in English. If you'd like to listen in Hindi, you can find that version in our podcast feed.
1: Queen's Memory Podcast ka ye episode is Mehe. easy. If you listen in Hindi, then we to Kripya our podcast feed. Pe
0: You're listening to Season 3 of the Queen's Memory Podcast. My name is Jia Yuan, and I'm the Queen's Memory Curator. In this season, our major minor voices, we feature stories from our neighbors of Asian descent in Queens, New York. Too often, these voices are deemed minor, as in, of a minority. But in our borough, these voices are a major force. One in five residents of the borough identifies as Asian American. The stories they tell reflect their ongoing struggles and triumphs. They are our stories, a vital part of who we are. And together, they represent a snapshot of our ever-changing neighborhoods, as they are now. This is Heidi Shen. I am Stella Cole. I'm Melody Tao. Rosalind. Trisha My name
1: is Indranil Choudhury. I'm in Jackson Heights, and this is where the story begins.
0: On 73rd Street in Jackson Heights is a residential co-op built in the 1960s. It's a relatively new building by New York standards. But in the 60-odd years that it's been standing there, the neighborhood around it has never stopped changing. In this episode, our producer Injunil Choudhury introduces us to stories from three residents who undertook very different journeys to calling the building home. First up is Nirma Munshi, who came to New York from Lucknow, a city in northern India. Let's listen.
2: I came to U.S. 50 years ago. Since then, I have mostly lived in and around Jackson Heights, New York. My first few years here were hardest. At that time, arranged marriages were the norm in India. I was very outspoken, so I would just say, I don't like this. I don't want to do this. My father was quite open-minded, but the rest of my family were very conservative. When I made the decision to come to US, I was leaving all that behind. So going back was never really an option to me. It was 1972. There were hardly any Indian shops here. Somebody would open a candy store. Someone else will open a small grocery store. So, many grocery stores came and went. It was tough. It was tough, but we made it. When I had my third baby, Sonia was eight years old. My younger one was five and she was very excited too. So, Sonia would say, I want to change the diaper. The younger one will say, I want to feed the baby. Put him in my lap and give me the bottle. I would be sitting there supervising them while I'm chopping my veggies. (laughs) So it was fine, you know, it was comfortable. It was not impossible.
1: Nirmal's daughter Sonia is a professor of Asian American Studies at the borough of Manhattan Community College, CUNY. While some of her earliest memories are right here in Queens, she describes how her relationship with Queens evolved as she grew older.
3: When you're living in a neighborhood and you're young, my perspective was very limited. And actually, it was when I was working at Sunnyside Community Services, um, by chance, I met someone who we started chatting because we were about the same age. And he told me that he moved to Jackson Heights because it was a gay neighborhood. And I was totally stunned. I I remember that feeling of like, wait, Jackson Heights is a gay neighborhood? I thought it was a South Asian neighborhood, you know, just to say that I think it was really through working in... Queens that I started to learn more about Queens. After that job, actually, I left Queens to work in New Jersey for several years. I worked at a South Asian women's organization called Monavi. Even though it was in New Jersey, we worked very closely with organizations in New York City. And it was through that job that I started to learn a lot about the South Asian community that again, like I wouldn't have known myself growing up and not, you know, wasn't something that in the 80s and 90s, we didn't have curriculum in school to teach us about South Asian history, South Asian American history. I also was very involved in SALGA, which is the South Asian Lesbian and Gay Association. Um, this is like the late 1990s to the early 2000s through 9-11. Um, I was also a volunteer with DRUM, which is an organization that's very fundamental to Jackson Heights and I, mean, I should say Queens and New York City organizing. Similar to what my mom was describing, you know, I didn't always feel very um, clear about how I belonged in a South Asian community. And I think that it was through getting involved in community work that then I started to feel like that's actually my place.
1: Through all this time, the neighborhood that Sonia knew as a child was changing slowly but steadily.
3: Like Jackson Heights, I remember the change from it just being like a sprinkling of stores to like this big commercial strip, like when all of a sudden it's referred to as Little India. But I would say that that started to feel like it happened more in like the later 80s yeah. to early 90s.
1: As the South Asian community planted its roots in Queens, there was one more essential service in the midst of all the grocery stores and sari shops that was in high demand. Entertainment. Sonia's partner Rekha Malhotra grew up in Queens around the same time as her. Popularly known as DJ Rekha, they cut their teeth curating, promoting, and DJing in the New York nightlife scene starting in the 80s. From their iconic party, Basement Bhangra, that ran for 20 years, to playing sold-out shows at mainstream events like Central Park Summer Stage, they fundamentally altered the nightlife scene by introducing the sound of Bhangra to the clubs of New York.
4: I want to thank uh, DJ uh, uh, Rekha, who's been spinning a little East Room Bhangra uh, for everybody.
1: It was as a student in Queen's College that Rika made the first advances into what would become a career.
4: I've actually never DJed at Queen's College. Somebody should fix that. Um, <laughs> but um, I was involved in the India club. There was no S- South Asian club at the time. And the previous members of the club had embezzled money to buy pagers. Uh, <laughs> such a dacey thing to do. So we were completely defunded. What I try to do there is I think I learned how to become a curator there in that we threw parties, but I wanted to do them in a way that was the timing of the parties was accessible to women who couldn't go out at night, folks that were involved in caregiving or had restrictive parents. So I did the tell your parents here at the library party and we booked bands. There were very few bands. We booked this band called the Avengers, a Pakistani Afghani band that were legendary we booked some of the DJs that ended up becoming legendary on their own, like Jay Dobby and Bobby Johal. These were the DJs that uh, eventually comprised of the Indian remix scene, which is what fueled a lot of the shops in Jackson Heights for a good while. They would basically take Bollywood songs and put beats on them and make them more danceable, and those things sold like crazy.
1: Throughout their music career... Rekha has been committed to investigating what they represent as a South Asian artist. Whether it's creating cultural spaces through their parties or serving on the board of Chaya CDC, for them, art and activism go hand in hand.
4: I think being authentic to your art is what is the most inviting thing for people. The whole Identity, cultural space thing. I don't think I was consciously thinking of it, but I was also not trying to placate Western ideologies of what Indian was. And I think in the States, it's very problematic how we define Indian as Hindu culture. I'm always resisting that. You know, my writer says if I'm not doing visuals, no religious images, no elephants, no none of that stuff. Taking it back to Queens, there are some really great Queens DJs now, and there's some great queer Latinx scenes that are happening in Queens, you know, and they often book South Asian DJs as well. These are people who are activists, who are using music to create cultural spaces, and I think that's a very Queens thing.
0: <laughs> what Rekha describes is part of a growing movement of people getting involved in community organizing. This is in response to an urgent need to address hyperlocal concerns like language justice, senior care, and political representation. The 2021 New York City Council elections were historic for precisely this reason. Across the city, young people with extensive organizing experience mobilized potential voters from the communities they grew up in. Further east, in Glen Oaks, the 24-year-old daughter of Sikh Punjabi immigrants was making her case. I was born and raised right here in eastern Queens, playing in Alley Pond Park, riding the Q46 bus, celebrating birthdays at Jackson Diner. In fact, this district doesn't even just feel like home to me. It's more than that. It feels like family. My name is Jasleen Carr, and I'm running for city council because I was taught that family comes first. I was raised by Sikh Punjabi immigrants. My father has driven a yellow taxi cab for over 30 years, and my mother works at a grocery store where she's a proud union member.
1: While Jocelyn's campaign energized a multi-ethnic, intergenerational base, young organizers came out in overwhelming numbers to support her vision of local government. Drashti Bramhut, who was 23 at the time, shares how her own journey inspired her to become one of Jocelyn's fiercest advocates.
5: There was a lot of things in my childhood that growing up, I couldn't really put a finger on or had the vocabulary to describe when we were living in um an apartment in um Elmhurst, had a severe case of bed bugs. I remember my sister who was an eighth grader or something you know very very young, having to help translate like legal documents because my parents decided to sue the landlord. Another huge part. Of my story, I feel like that that feels normal in Queens. And my parents, you know, they uh, were undocumented. They both overstayed um, their visas, and I like explain what that really meant for me, like as a kid. That meant my parents not being able to travel anywhere outside of the U.S. They couldn't even visit India when their own parents died. When my mom's sister died, like they couldn't do these normal things of being able to go to your sister's funeral. And I saw the impact of that growing up when you know my parents spent many nights, you know, crying about that the, the inability to move and to to have mobility just like any other normal person would. And that's how I got involved in organizing in the the Democratic Socialists of America, specifically the Queens chapter. I was really involved in Um, the electoral working group and at one of our endorsement meetings um, this young woman came her name is Giseline Corr and she came to seek our endorsement. Um, She was running for city council district 23 which was all the way eastern Queens practically the border of Long Island and listening to Giseline speak you know a young woman talking about the challenges she faced growing up Talking about her dad who rides his taxi from, you know, 4 to 5 a.m. all the way to midnight sometimes, and how her mom works the night shift at Stop and Shop, and her sometimes not being able to see either of her parents um, in a day after coming back from school. And the way she talked about it, you know, brought tears to my eyes. I just, I felt, you know, just so connected to that story of hers.
0: Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Justine Carr. I come to you here all the way from Eastern Queens because it is a beautiful day to tax the rich, fund our excluded workers, and impeach Cuomo. We continue to throw so police at issues that desperately need care, attention, and response. labor. Hire local. It's very inspiring, very exciting to be the first, but not the only one. And every single life that we have lost to COVID-19 is an example of what happens when we put profits over people. The 118 billionaires in New York state over the working people like us. I come to you as the daughter of an excluded worker, the daughter of a taxi driver who has never had the chance to rest in all 62 years of his life.
1: Drashti quickly got to work helping Jasleen put her campaign together. A few months later, she received an interesting proposition from Jasleen.
5: One day in January, Jasleen calls me and says, Drashti, like, I need you to be my campaign manager, like please. (laughs) She's like, come on, we got to do this together. And I said, um, absolutely not. Like I'm in my last semester of graduate school. This is not happening. Um, I was just on break and, you know, she, she convinced me, she talked about the once in a lifetime opportunity we have to finally elect a South Asian person, specifically a South Asian woman to city council, um, to bring the representation to the council, to do all of this stuff that we wanted to do. It was never, you know, about win, just winning the election. It was about how can we energize all these people that we grew up with, all these uncles and aunties to finally care and vote in this election. And how can a youth in the community um, bring us and advance us forward?
1: And the youth came out in huge numbers to support Justine's campaign. Ten minutes from Justine's district in Nassau County, Another young organizer, Sabina Unni, became instrumental in helping the campaign articulate their policy vision.
6: It's funny, a lot of the big issues that people talk to us on the phone, on the doors, are like hyper, hyper local concerns. Like the number one thing was uh, tree pruning and how a lot of trees fell in the streets and Uh, straight pets and how there are a lot of straight cats everywhere. Broadly, I think, like, what that translates to is government responsiveness, feeling like you have no one to call when you have, like, a tree branch blocking your driveway, or you have a cat that you don't know, like, what to do. There's nobody who you can feel like you can contact. It's one of the naturally occurring retirement communities. There's a ton of elder South Asians. Some live at home, some don't live at home. But having the necessary infrastructure to allow uh, working-class South Asians to age in place, you know, some things that like people talked about a lot were like support for caregivers to allow their parents to live at home and them to take care of their parents and not to have to go bankrupt or quit their jobs, choose between working a job and caring for their parent or somebody in their community, or having public transportation that is accessible to seniors, to people with disabilities, since it's like a massive transit desert. Things like grab bars and small home modifications to make it so they can stay in their homes. That's why I think Trislyn's awesome is because she's able to take this broader idea of like, okay, the broader thing that we're fighting against, capitalism. What does this mean? in people's daily lives, can't afford to stay in your home because your shower is really dangerous. And like, how did these two things merge with each other? How is this super relevant to you?
1: Almost a year after the election, Trushy reflects on what the experience meant to her.
5: At the campaign party, you know, we were having speeches from a variety of volunteers. And it was, it was a pretty regimented schedule, you know, like everyone got three minutes, we had five speakers. And then all of a sudden, before I was passing it off to Jasleen, one Punjabi uncle says, I would actually like to say a few words. And I was like, oh my gosh, no, this uncle did not get the memo. And I was like, okay, you know, let's, let's just give him the mic. <laughs> worst comes to worst, if it gets out of hand, I'll be, you know, I'll try to take the mic away and back. So I give him the mic and he went up there and just spoke from his heart. And he talked about, I I know that a lot of people my age are afraid when they see socialism or housing for everyone or this for everyone or that for everyone. But I want to remind everyone that these are values that have been with us forever. And he talks about the history of, you know, socialist organizing in Queens and socialist organizing in Punjab and India at large. And he really, for the first time, I felt it really clicked in my mind that Yes, we had lost the election by a few votes, but there was something else that we created. This direct link between different generations in East Queens, bringing this idea, these progressive values that were always there. It wasn't like all of a sudden we brought it and we were talking about it, that they were always there. We just kind of activated this type of organizing in the community.
1: Jocelyn's campaign brought together a huge group of people who were willing to re-examine what community meant to them, to look past their differences for the sake of looking ahead. For The Queen's Memory Podcast, I'm Indranil Choudhury.
0: Join us next time for more stories from our Queen's neighbors. The Queen's Memory Podcast is a production of The Queen's Memory Project. For full transcripts, show notes from this episode and past seasons, visit queensmemory.org forward slash podcast. This episode was produced by Indranil Chowdhury in conjunction with Melody Tao, Anna Williams, and Natalie Milbroich. Mixing and editing by Corey Choi with music composed by Elias Raven. Special thanks to Justine Carr. This podcast has been made possible in part by the National Endowment for the Humanities, Democracy Demands Wisdom. The views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this episode are those of its creators and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of National Endowment for the Humanities, Queen's Public Library, the City University of New York, or their employees. I'm Jiefei Yuan. Listen with us next time on Queen's Memory.